Good morning, church. Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel. Uh, just one word of disappointment. Uh, we were going to give away a new SUV this morning to anyone sitting in the front row of this section. And uh, boy, just missed. So close. Uh, maybe next time. Yeah, so front row is actually a very good place to be, all kinds of different ways. Hey, we have some guests with us this weekend I want to introduce to you. Uh, Jim Shades is here from Casper, Wyoming. He's a church planter. We're thinking about partnering with Jim doing church planting in Casper in the future. So stand up, Jim, if you will. Say hi to Jim. As you know, Union Chapel's passionate about planting new churches, and we're doing that here and there all over the place, around the world. And we're excited about the partnerships and friendships that we're building with potential church planters. We have another guy here from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania this weekend. Troy Miller's here. Troy, stand up for us and say hi to Troy. <laughs> Troy's launching a new church in Pittsburgh this fall, and so we're uh, collaborating and talking about potential partnership with them this weekend. I wanted you to know them and be introduced to them, maybe say hi to them before you leave today. Uh, we have been on this series entitled God's at War. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? God's at War. But what we've learned is that there are these little gods in our world, lesser gods, little bitty gods, who sometimes block our view and take our attention away from the one true God and our primary focus on our relationship with Jesus. And so these these little gods are described as idols in the Bible. When, the, when our affections get askew and awry, it's called idolatry, and it's to be avoided. And so we've learned that there are certain practices that the saints of history have engaged in order to run well and finish well in the faith, and that there are pitfalls that trip people up and knock them off course and keep them from running well and finishing well. So we've been identifying those and, and perhaps helping you to carefully analyze and consider whether or not these little things are in your way as well. Today, we are talking about one of those, those big things that tend to distract us. All of us get caught up in it to one degree or another. And so today we want to talk about the God of money. And we have chosen as our text from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. I'm going to read for us from verses 13 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project these words on the screen for you. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so I invite you to do that as you're able. The setting here is Jesus has, has been enthronged by thousands of people, thousands of people, and they're falling over each other. He's very popular. People want to get close to him. So there are thousands of people there assembled. And so Jesus uses the opportunity to begin to teach. And he's teaching some very powerful things, important truths. And, and then in the middle of that kind of environment, that context, there's some guy in the crowd that asks a question. Here we pick up the story. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, what kind of a dope interrupts a big meeting like that with a dumb question. And Jesus responds to the dope, kind of a, you know, hey, dope, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you and your brother? Like, what's the matter with you, dude? <laughs> but then Jesus used it as a teachable moment. And he said to the whole crowd, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist 
in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, the God of money has been around for a long time, hasn't it? Back in the day, you knew him as gold or silver. Before that, it was heads of livestock, bundles of grain. These days, uh, he goes as cash or dough or bacon or greenbacks or Benjamins or moolah or my favorite, hundies. It's what we do. The list goes on. He might take the form of a plastic card or be in a file called portfolio, all kinds of evidence. Since the rise of the uh, democratic systems in the Western world, here's what's happened. The playing field has mostly been leveled so that in 2020, virtually anyone can accumulate wealth and experience the American dream. I mean, it's, it's there, it's available, it's out there. You can, you can go for it. And occasionally we'll hear ultra rich people saying things like, well, you know, money doesn't make you happy. But those of us who are just merely rich, not the ultra rich, those of us who are merely rich, which is virtually everyone in this room <laughs> by world standards, most of us think they all flew first class to some exotic destination where they got together and agreed to say that to make the rest of us feel better. So we're not really sure we believe them. But for the most part, we pay lip service to the idea that money isn't important, that it doesn't really influence me, it doesn't impact me. But the way we spend our time, the way we engage in our pursuits, that's the real revelation of our true belief. Uh, most of us know the name Samuel Clemens. Uh, his pseudonym was Mark Twain, famous author in American history. He made this statement. I think it's pretty perceptive. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, some, some men worship rank, some worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God. And over these ideals, they dispute and cannot unite, but they all worship money. Not too far off. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus, again, is teaching to this a crowd of thousands of people. He's, he's saying very strong and lofty things. For example, in this speech he gives that day, he said, if you disown me on earth, I'll disown you before the angels in heaven. If you recognize me on earth, I'll recognize you before the Father in heaven. I mean, these are, these are very poignant moments of teaching. And then suddenly this, I've described him as a dope. He, th this guy he interrupts, you know, he's just a voice among thousands of people saying, hey, tell my brother to share his inheritance. <laughs> well, obviously this guy's got money on his mind, not heaven on his mind and kingdom things on his mind. Someone in the crowd says, hey, make him share. Well, this is likely the younger brother in the Old Testament system. The older got two thirds of the inheritance, the younger got a third. And so he felt that this was unfair, asking for Jesus' help. Uh, Jesus uses this again as a teachable moment. He says, watch out, put this on the screen for you. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There it is. There it is, some clarity, some perspective. That's helpful to, helpful to be reminded of that, that life is not about stuff. 
It's not about material things. Jesus makes the point that life's not about money. He goes on to tell the story about a man who made money and possessions his God. Chose to serve and worship a lesser God, a little God called money. Jesus has been consistent throughout the gospels when he's talking about money and possessions. He reminds us that money uh, produces a competition for our, the affections of our heart, our attention. He reminds us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, it's been universally recognized across, across history, across societies, across political systems, across religious, major religious groups, that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest teaching that's ever been given to humanity. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount only used one illustration, and it was about money. So there's something going on here. Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said you cannot serve both God and money. He didn't say you should not. He didn't say you may not. He said you cannot serve these two at the same time. So he continues, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so we know in this story that Jesus offers to us that the guy's already rich. A rich man now has an abundant crop on top of his riches. Now he has a dilemma. You know, this is, he's got a rich man's problems. What am I going to do with all of this abundance, all of this surplus? So he thinks about that and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my little barns and build bigger ones to store this abundance of mine. And then he reasons to himself, and when I do that, I'll have enough for many years. I can take life easy. I can eat, drink, and be merry. And that's how it goes. The story, of course, represents someone who is worshiping the God of money. And if you look closely, you'll notice that the man refers to himself nine different times in two verses. My crops, my barns, my grain, et cetera, et cetera. Can we, can we settle something today? I, maybe we've settled it before, but let's just remind ourselves of this truth. God is the owner of everything. God is the owner of everything. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter five on the screen with me. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they carry in their hands. There it is. Psalm 24 verse one is very succinct. It simply says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Any questions? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. A good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, Maxie Dunham, greatly used of God in his life. He's in his 80s now and still very fruitful and effective. And he pastored large churches. He was the editor of the Upper Room Daily Devotional. Some of you old timers in the room remember the Upper Room. And he was president of Asbury Theological Seminary for 10 years. We were standing in a group of people uh, with Asbury in 2008, 2009. This is right after the recession hit. And Maxie took formal retirement in 2008. And because of the recession and the way it affected the markets, it in, impacted his retirement investments. And someone was asking him, how bad of a hit did you take? And how has that affected your stipend now in retirement? And folks were kind of concerned about him. And he smiled at all of us and he looked at it and he said, listen, I haven't really worried about it too much because it was never mine to begin with. Never mine to begin with. Seems like this is a guy with perspective. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God 
will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. As it turns out, maybe God is the one who supplies. God is the one who is our source. God is the one we rely on and trust in and hope in to meet our needs. Let me give you a homework assignment. Go through some day, sometime this week, and just recognize that everything is God's and it belongs to him. For example, get out of God's bed, walk into God's bathroom, turn on God's shower, put on God's clothes, eat God's cereal, drink God's coffee, get in God's car, head off to work. It'll give you the perspective you need. It'll fill you with gratitude, give you a heart of worship to acknowledge that God is the source and supply of your life. The reason money so often ends up being God's chief competition is that we tend to ascribe divine attributes to it. Things that only God can provide to us, we tend to put money in its place. Again, a false God, a little God, a lesser God. We tend to get distracted about these virtues and these, and, and these uh, support reference points for our lives and we ascribe them to other things, lesser things that only God can ultimately legitimately fulfill in our lives. This is on your outline. This is the first idea that comes to mind and that is we can see money wrongly as the source of security, source of security. Now, there are gods of power, there are gods of success, there are gods of money, these lesser gods, little gods, and they all have a shared premise. The shared premise that the gods of money and success and power uh, all have in common is that they believe that we can take care of ourselves. Yeah, we can handle all of our needs. The Lord's nice, knowing Jesus is great, but he's not really necessary. For example, I don't have to pray for my daily bread today. The Lord give us this day our daily bread. I don't need to really pray that because I've got enough food at home for today. In fact, I've got enough food in the pantry for a month. And so we just get comfortable with all of the resource that is around us in an affluent society like ours. And we no longer see God as necessary. And so we see the bank account and we see our cash flow. We see a few bucks in our pocket as our source of security. So when we look only to money as our security, it can become our God because that's where we put our hope. That's where we put our dependence. Here's the second thing. You might want to write this down. We can see money as a source of satisfaction. Satisfaction. Now think about that. The man in Jesus' story thinks to himself, if I just accumulate a little more, I can take life easy. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. And even before his good crop, this guy was rich. We know this in the story. But he believes if he had just a little bit more, he'd be satisfied. Have you ever had this internal speak? Have you ever had this conversation with a spouse or a close friend? When you have said to yourself or said out loud in the presence of someone else, you know, God's been good. We've been blessed. Yeah, better than we deserve. To coin a Dave Ramsey phrase. <laughs> And yet, if we just had a little bit more, we could, we could do this or have that. You know, it's, God's, been, God's been faithful. God's been good. But if we just had a little bit more, then we could take it easy. Beth and I started out in life in an upstairs one-bedroom efficiency apartment in Wilmore, Kentucky. When I went to grad school at Asbury Seminary, we ate a lot of spaghetti and bologna and peanut butter. I'm not sure ramen noodles were available at the time <laughs> or we'd have been eating those. It had its advantages. 
Uh, we only had to plug the vacuum cleaner in one place, one time, because uh, the cord reached from wall to wall, you know, to, all over the apartment. Uh, that was nice. When, when, we, uh, uh, when we got married, we were immediately pregnant. Some of you think you got pregnant quick. Beth and I are pretty sure we got pregnant on the honeymoon. We dated for six years. I was tired of waiting, apparently. So that was enough. And so we got pregnant on the honeymoon and Beth immediately got morning sickness. I mean, she was really sick. Now that was bad news because she was so sick and she couldn't work and I didn't have a job. And so we didn't have any income. <laughs> so that was bad. But the good news is she was too sick to eat. And so it was relatively cheap <laughs> to keep her around there for several months. The <laughs> That's terrible. I just feel terrible saying that. But anything for a laugh sometimes. Anyway. The <laughs> She was a trooper and she was uh, diagnosed with hypoglycemia and that's what made her so nauseous. But it was a long time before we caught on to that. And so when she delivered our first son, she, had actually, she was actually the same weight as when we got married. So she lost 30 pounds through the gestation period and then gave birth. So she was, she was a sick girl. And, and as I say, she was a trooper. When we moved to Muncie, we were provided a parsonage um, a house to live in, but we were required to pay the utilities out of our $11,000 salary. Uh, and we have so many stories of freezing in the winter, you know, because who could afford to turn the heat on <laughs> and roasting in the summer because there was no air conditioning in the house. Beth's favorite story came from a very hot summer morning. We had been sweating all night uh, and then got up on a Sunday morning and I was getting ready for church. And that's back in the day when I wore a suit and tie, you know, to church. And, um, and I was just hot and I was not happy. And I got out of the shower and I was still sweating and I was trying to put my clothes on and something happened. Beth knows this part of the story better than I recall, but something happened and I, and I lost it. And I said some things to her that I regret. And, and, it, and the kids were screaming and, you know, it was, Jesus loves me, this, I, one of those moments on a Sunday morning. And, and I just thought, I'm going to step outside on the little stoop and maybe there's a breeze out there. Maybe I can just cool off a little bit before I try to put my shirt and tie on and all that. And so I stepped out on the, you know, after I'd given, given Beth an earful, I step out on the stoop and I wasn't out there for three seconds and God sent a, a bird. This bird obviously had a big appetite and probably was suffering some kind of gastro issues. And that bird dive bombed me and torched me. This is back when I had hair. I mean, a, a huge amount. I mean, it was copious. It just hit me like this and just went and just completely splattered me just covered me. I walked inside, Beth took one look at me and you know, she thought it was funny. <laughs> she found it humorous. I was not in such a mood. So I had to just start over, jump back in the shower, the whole thing over. Um, some time ago, Beth and I were lying in bed reminiscing about all the austerity stories that we had to engage in our early years. And I said, you know, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. 
I said, we didn't have anything. And she turned, turned her head to me and she said, we didn't have anything, but we had everything. And then in this perceptive way that she often does, she asked me another question. She said, are you happier now than you were then? I didn't have to think for a second. I said, no, no, I'm not. That's helpful perspective, isn't it? Help me. I know that in my head, simplicity is highly underrated. I mean, I can reason that. I can intellectually go there. A simpler life in so many ways is a better life. When you don't have the accumulation of all this stuff piled up. You know, in America, it's, it's bizarre. It's crazy. I mean, we actually rent storage facilities now to put our junk in it. We, we, we spend tens of thousands of dollars on automobiles and park them outside because our garage has so much junk in it, we can't get the car in. What is the matter with us? Crazy time. And we know we can, we can get our minds around it. We can also push it out on the other side and say, you know, uh, the more stuff you have, the more distraction it is, the more time it takes, the more energy to manage it all. It was a misnomer in our world that you think that people who have a lot of money, you know, they've got it easier than people who have less money. And it's not true. There, you know, there are benefits, obviously, and it, there are some, some easing of life as a result of that. But listen to me, the more money you have, it becomes exponentially more difficult to manage. People who are ultra rich, who have tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, even a billion dollars, you say, well, that, that's the, the ultimate easy street. No, no, no. Especially if you're a Christian person and God has given you that level of wealth, it is an enormous burden to manage that in an honorable way. And so we get confused about this and we, so we intellectually identify with the notion that, yeah, simpler is better. More is just more complex, more difficult. And we can reason that way, but most of us, even though we understand that, we still tend to lean toward, but if I just had a little bit more, just a little bit more, I think that would do it. We have to come to terms with that. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you'll never get all you want. So we can see money as a source of security, a source of satisfaction, one more point, and that is a source of significance. Now, are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about these issues as I, as I talk about them relative to how much emphasis you put on money in these areas? Or are these areas where you look to God to be your source, to be your satisfaction, to be your significance? In Jesus' story, the man is focused on himself and how much he's accumulated. He clearly found his identity in his stuff, his significance in his stuff. This is interesting. Psychologists have studied what makes people happy. Not only do many of them find that money can't buy it, the opposite seems to hold true. Listen to this. The University of Illinois psychologist Ed Diner said it this way, and I quote, materialism is toxic for happiness. Materialism is toxic for happiness. His research indicates that those who are less concerned about accumulating and spending are more likely to experience contentment. 
This is counterintuitive, isn't it? This doesn't follow with what we've been taught, what we experience all the time in a materialistic culture. The research shows that there is no appreciable difference in contentment, watch this now, in contentment between people who make $30,000 per year and those who make $100,000. No appreciable difference in happiness levels between people in those two categories. You say, well, that can't be true. Apparently, it's not only true, but what we learn from that is that people making $30,000 a year, these are folks now who don't have to worry about whether or not there's gonna be food for lunch today and a roof over their head. So once you get past that homeless uh, category or that deep poverty, top poverty level and you rise just above th that level, the contentment and happiness possibilities are there before you. And there is no appreciable difference between people making 30,000 a year and 100,000. That's fascinating to me. I love Dr. Uh, Billy Graham. Uh, most of you know that name. He was America's pastor. He lived to over 100 years old. I think he's arguably one of the great icons of the, of the 20th century in world Christianity. Um, I, I just have the highest regard for him. His autobiography was a book entitled Just As I Am, which was a perfect title. You know, that was the name of the hymn that he would use in his crusades to invite people to know Christ. And so in this book, he wrote this story, and I quote, some years ago, Ruth and I were on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. Finally, the man said, I'm the most miserable man in the world. He said, out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as miserable as hell. Dr. Graham said, we talked to him and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ who alone can provide lasting meaning in life. He said, then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. He said, that afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman, and he too was 75 years old, a widower who spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. <laughs> he was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. He said to Dr. Graham, and Ruth, his wife, with a smile. And I quote, I don't have two pounds to my name, but I am the happiest man on this island. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? Isn't that poignant? I mean, doesn't that add perspective? That's amazing. Gosh, let that soak in. The God of money wants us to believe that our significance comes from what we make of ourselves. But what we know to be true is that our identity is ultimately found in Christ. Our value is ascertained because of the work of Christ. Think about it. God sent his only son into the world, his only son, the one and only son he had into this world to become a person. He put on an earth suit. Why? What was his mission? What was the motivation? The motivation that Almighty God had on our behalf was to send his own son to live a sinless life, therefore becoming the perfect sacrifice to cover all of our sins. 
He alone became the perfect spotless lamb. And God offered up his own son. Let me ask you, how valuable was the life of Jesus Christ? How precious the blood of Jesus spilled out for us. How, how big a price tag could you put on that? How substantial is it? I mean, it's, it's incomprehensible, isn't it? It's almost unfathomable. I mean, you can't assess value to the very life of the son of God. I mean, what is he worth? Now flip the coin over and realize this simple truth. It's hard to comprehend, but if we can do it, we'll understand where our value comes from. God saw you. He saw you. And he said, whatever the value of the life of my son, I'm willing to spend it for you. I'm willing to give the very life of my own son for you to purchase you back from your sins. Let me ask you a question. What then is your value? If God is willing to invest the life of his own son on your behalf, what worth do you have as a human being? If God himself is willing to give his own life in order to purchase you into his family. Hard to calculate that, isn't it? And we get all worked up. We get all distracted by a few bucks in our pocket, a few dollars in a bank account. Are you kidding me? We, we, that's our source. That's our significance. That's our satisfaction. Really? Seriously? Come on now. What are we thinking? This is money, that's a lesser God. That's a little God. That's an insignificant God compared to the great transcendent God who has made a way for every one of us and particularly made a way for you because he spent the life of his son in order to purchase you back. You're worth a lot. You're worth a lot. If you look to money or power or influence or, or love or sex, or any of these lesser gods in our world today, thinking you can find what only God can provide for you. You're a foolish person. So he who has an ear, let him hear what God says to us. Well, the man in Luke chapter 12 had put his trust in money and possessions, yeah? His plan was to retire early. Life of luxury, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. But that's not what happened. We all know the end of the story, don't we? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So the question for us today, and this is the question, is it possible that we have ascribed to money some of those divine attributes of security, satisfaction, and significance, and that we've allowed our perspective to be clouded by money in areas that only God can make available for us. I wanna help us today as we conclude. I wanna just spend a few moments, if you'll just be attentive and contemplative and think about these things, I'm gonna ask you a few questions that'll just help you process. How am I doing in this area of my life? Do I need to make adjustments? Do I need to move some of these lesser things out of, out of my purview so that I can see and relate to Jesus clearly and intimately. Would you bow your heads with me just for a few moments as we conclude today? 
Let me ask you a few questions and you, you just think about it. The first one is how often do you compare what you have and how much you make to other people? We all know the world teaches us to measure one another by payroll. The more we make, the more important we are. And it's so easy to slip into that thinking. So here's the question, are you content with your salary? Of course, there are plenty of healthy reasons to be motivated toward greater earnings, but what are your reasons? Do you develop resentment when you feel you're worth more than you're paid? It could be an indication that money's becoming a God in your life. How about this question? How much anxiety do finances add to your life? I mean, if you were to rank the things that cause you the greatest stress, where would you list money on that scale? And how does it compare to such things as health and relationships, job performance? Maybe, maybe your financial situation is causing a lot of stress. So are you continually bringing that burden before the Lord? Can you give thanks, be content, even in the midst of the financial challenge? Hear this question, to, to what extent are your dreams and goals driven by money? I mean, do your dreams involve wealth and luxury, winning the lottery? If that's true, why? Why is that true? Try to be honest with yourself as you reflect on why you would want great sums of money. I mean, how's that related to security, satisfaction, or significance? One more question. What is your attitude toward giving? Think about occasions when you're called upon to offer a financial donation. What, what emotions do you feel when you're asked to give? Are you annoyed? Or, or do you find enjoyment, inspiration in using your finances to help others? A very generous, rich man said, listen to this, giving money away breaks its power. Did you hear that? Giving money away breaks its power. It's like you're saying to money, I don't even care about you. You are so unimportant to me that I can just give you away. <laughs> if you find, if you want to find how important money is to you, start giving it away. Well, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would touch each one of us, help us to be circumspect and reflective of the simple question and help us to refocus our affection, our love, our devotion, our worship on you. No smaller, lesser, tiny, little, insignificant gods no longer in the way. Turn our eyes upon Jesus and give us the grace to do so. In his holy name we pray. And the people said, amen, amen. Would you stand with us?